So I've been asked tonight to speak some about the, um, the science behind what we're doing here and to talk about the interface of the research that's been happening. And there's been actually quite a lot of it going on over the last 20 years or so, and especially more recently, that, um, that really gives us a basis for understanding in the body, in the brain, the mind, the, the physiological, the mental, the neuro, um, uh, the, just what's happening in the area of science in relation to mindfulness. And um, this work came out of the, I, I teach at a center at, at UCLA that we've started called the Mindful Awareness Research Center. And we're interested in this intersection of science and mindfulness. And um, we're in a medical school. What's interesting about being in this medical school, we're actually in a neuropsychiatric institute at the medical school, is that everything there is about mental illness. So psychopathology, there's all this research going on everywhere. I walk down the halls where I work and there's, there's you know, research studying into suicidal and depressed teenagers or working with obsessive compulsive disorder or, you know, a wide variety of things going on. We're interested in what is mental health? What is well-being? And as my colleague and friend Dan Siegel says, whenever he goes, he lectures around the country. He'll talk to a room full of 10,000 people, uh, uh, mental health professionals, and he'll say, how many of you have ever studied mental well-being? And about you know, 2% raise their hands. Because everyone's been taught about um, illness, but no one's taught about health and what is well-being. And so a lot of the research in mindfulness falls under this category of um, this category of promoting wellness and well-being. And that's what you do as a yoga teacher in some ways. So I thought some of this might be helpful to you to help frame these, um, the, frame what you do in more secular language, which is what I'm very interested in and committed to. I'm not a scientist, so forgive me if there's somebody out here who's a scientist and I use the wrong language or something, but I think I have a pretty fairly, fairly good layperson's grasp of what's been going on. The Buddha, in a sense, we can say, was the original neuroscientist. The Buddha explored the mind. The Buddha went into the mind and then began to talk about it in ways that were so precise and so clear. And now only 2,500 years later, we're saying, oh, he's right. You know, he figured this out long before before anybody else did. And it's it's also interesting as a Buddhist myself, when I see the research going on and someone says, oh, mindfulness is good for helping you learn how to pay attention. And I say, duh. So we know from our own experience, we don't really need, uh, you know, we don't need the research to tell us that mindfulness is good. But um, I'm going to tell you the research anyway. The Buddha constantly asked us to look within. There was this sutta called the Kalama Sutta, very famous sutta, 
where he was, um, it, during the time of the Buddha, if you can kind of imagine, it was very, very, uh, there are lots and lots of different teachers of all different kinds of practices. So there were guys that were saying, if you bathe in the Ganges, you'll get rid of all your suffering. And there were guys that said, if you walk around on the, on the uh, ground like a cow and moo, because they're sacred, you'll relieve your suffering. And then there was a whole range in between of other things. And the story goes that the Buddha went to this village and the people came up to him and said, we're so confused. We hear this, we hear that, we hear this will lead to liberation, this will lead to freedom. Um, what do we believe in? And the Buddha basically said these things. And this is where, and the reason I'm telling you this is because the Buddha was like a scientist in approaching this. And he said, don't believe something because you've heard it before. Don't believe it because if it's an old tradition, if it's written in religious or other books, if superficially it seems to be true, if it's based in logic or philosophy, if teachers or elders say it's true, even famous ones, even the Buddha himself, he said, don't believe me. Only believe something you've clearly seen for yourself to be true. If, to, if after fully examining and considering a teaching carefully, you find that it leads to happiness for one and all, accept it and live up to it. So I'm telling you this, one, because you can apply that to your own understanding of the teachings, but also to show how the Buddha was so interested in us each using our own intelligence and our wisdom and not taking things on faith, not just assuming because some guy, usually it was a guy back then, right, said it was true, you should believe it. And this is the same approach that we see in science that you have this perspective of let's examine it, let's rigorously attempt to understand and examine it before we believe something to be true. So in this practice, what we're doing here is that we've become these scientists of our own mind. So we'll tell you the Four Noble Truths, so you hear the Four Noble Truths, great, 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 you hear it, but it's until you see it acted out in your body and mind that that's when you believe it. That's when you say, oh yes, this is true. If this happens, this leads to suffering. When I do this, it leads to the freedom from suffering. That's when you go, okay, I can take this on as a philosophy for myself. So we become a scientist of our mind. Our mind is our laboratory. And tonight, I'm gonna to look at what the laboratories have to say about our minds. Keep in mind a couple of things as I talk about this, and this is important. First of all, the field of mindfulness and science is, it's just exploding right now. So about 10 years ago, if you looked up research studies on mindfulness, you would see maybe there were about 70 studies. There are now over 700 studies on mindfulness. And that's not even, that's just on mindfulness. That's not including the research on yoga, on different kinds of practices, on, um, you know, on TM. There's been tons and tons of studies on transcendental meditation and a huge variety of other ones. People are making their careers, graduate students are making their careers in the field of mindfulness, which is very exciting for those of us who've been doing this for a long time because 
back 20 years ago when I first started meditating, it was very weird, you know? It was this little fringe, fringe world. But now it's getting more and more popular and you have someone on the cover of Time magazine meditating. Um, so it's kind of neat to see the way it's gotten more disseminated into the culture. And this research is, um, is part of why that's happening. The research is still in its infancy. So I'll tell you about a lot of these studies, but you got to take it all with a grain of salt. The reason is for something to be considered like to be true, and this is exactly what the Buddha is talking about, was talking about. For something to be considered true, it has to be replicated more than once. And it also has to be um, done, there has to have been a control study. In other words, people who, who go through a similar program, um, but they don't have the, for instance, they don't have the mindfulness training, they have some other kind of mindfulness. So it's a comparison. Many of the research did not have control studies and much of it didn't, um, has not been replicated. So even though the results are very exciting and promising, it's all at the very beginning. So just understand that. Take it with a grain of salt. You're probably going to be sitting here thinking, oh, as, a, as, I'm, as I'm talking about this, you're saying, oh, I want to hear more about this. I want to hear more about that. I will put up some kind of reference sheet at the end of the retreat, so don't worry if you're really curious about where things come from. The other thing to say is you actually can't measure mindfulness yet. There's no, you can't hook up a brain and see a part to a, you know, fMRI or an EEG and see the mindfulness center of the brain light up. There is no mindfulness center of the brain. They don't know. You can't actually measure mindfulness. What you can measure is self-report which is someone will say, before I took this program in mindfulness, I was this way mindful, and now that I've gone through it, I'm that way mindful. And so you can actually explore the differences, the subjective differences. There are some objective measures, computer tests to see how well people pay attention and how that's changed over time. And then there's brain research where you can look at associated factors with the, um, with the brain. You can look at uh, different parts of the brain, such as empathy or flexible thinking or compassion, and how that's related to mindfulness. So this is what I mean by it's still in its infancy. We don't even, this, actually, the scientists don't even have an agreement around what is a definition of mindfulness, which is interesting in itself. It's hard to, it's hard to get agreement on that. I realize as I'm talking about this, this is the kind of a Dharma talk in the middle of a meditation retreat that can get your mind really going. You can start thinking, oh, there's that research, or you might have your own idea for a research study, or you want to do this with, your, with the yoga students. And so I'm going to invite us throughout this retreat to really stay connected to our bodies. So that's starting right now. So just notice your body. Notice how you're sitting. You don't have to move. You don't have to do anything in particular. But bring your attention into your body here and now. And you'll notice that you can listen and still take in all this information, but have a connection with this body. 
And you can notice through the talk if there's a leaning forward, if there is an excitement. Sometimes ideas can generate a lot of pleasant sensation in our minds and we want more or maybe it's too much and we feel overwhelmed or just become aware of it. And I'll invite us back into our bodies as we do this talk that's kind of, you know, a lot of theory. So just take a moment right now and just sense your body. You can close your eyes for a second. Again, just feeling your body present here. Noticing your breath. Noticing any thoughts, sensations. Whatever, let whatever is here be here. Okay, you can open your eyes, but don't forget the mindfulness, or at least try. So the physical, the area, one of the main areas that they've done a lot of research in has been the area of physical health, how, how, the, um, how our bodies are impacted through doing these mind-body practices. There's been research, as I said, on yoga, tai chi, meditation, mindfulness. I'll stick more with the mindfulness ones, but there's similar results. You can kind of abstract that out. They originally started exploring mindfulness in the laboratory through John Kabat-Zinn's work with the mindfulness-based stress reduction that many of you are aware of. Um, and this was, started, this was started in the early 80s, and he was a doctor and also a meditator. And he was interested, there were a lot of patients in the hospital who had huge amounts of pain. And there was nothing that these patients could do. There were, um, they had given them, you know, every medication and all these treatments and nothing was helping them. So John suggested that he would try to create a mindfulness protocol for them to go through, which he did. And this model, and many of you have gone through it, you know it, but it involves eight weeks of mindfulness training, also training on identifying stress, working with physical pain. There's, um, there's also mindful yoga in it. It's a really wonderful program, and a lot of programs have been modeled on it since. Now, it's again and again shown scientifically to have been really helpful, especially, and I'll talk a little bit about these pain patients, but the thing is the data here is confusing because there's a lot going on when you go through an eight-week program. So they don't know, for instance, do people improve because they practiced mindfulness every day? Did they improve because they were in a community, community setting where they got to talk about what was going on with them? Did they improve because the teacher, they connected with the teacher. There's a, lot, a strong suspicion that one of the reasons people are able to feel more present, less, um, really less suffering, is because of the relationship with the teacher themselves, which is relevant to you as a yoga teacher. Um, so, so again, the data is not clear. But what happened was that the students began to, to learn to tolerate the pain. And exactly what you're learning, what you're learning here on the meditation retreat, this was shown in the laboratory to be true. That sometimes the pain lessened, and if the pain didn't, lessen, didn't necessarily lessen, what it would do was the relationship to the pain shifted. 
and people's capacity and ability to tolerate the pain increased. And this was considered really amazing, especially at the time, because they had no other treatments for these people. But they could be in the midst of pain, just like we're doing, learning that you don't have to get caught up in the whole story about the pain, that you can be present with it in all its sensations and movement and shifting and changing, and you can learn about, learn about pain rather than to be in resistance to pain. So as we're learning to do here, they learn to separate the painful sensation from the suffering about it. Just like Mark was talking about the two arrows last night, the one that, that is shot in us, this inevitability of pain, and then this ability to, um, to separate, to go, okay, there's pain, and then the second arrow is the suffering, what we, what we put on top of it. So those were the very early studies, and they've continued actually to prove to be quite, uh, those, those, are, those are some, because they started so long ago, they continue to be quite um, helpful, uh, shown to be true. They've studied mindfulness in relation to the immune response. People who took the flu vaccine had increased antibodies compared to people who didn't. They did a recent study at UCLA with HIV patients. And these patients, this was a very interesting one, because these patients, it was um, predominantly low-income people who um, were kind of, they were in the study, they kind of didn't want to be there, they sometimes meditated, because part of it is you have to do a home practice, so it's an eight-week program and you do home practice. They kind of didn't really want to meditate, but they wanted to learn it. They were, it was very mixed motivation. Um, what they found was in these people, the T-cells, uh, the T cells increased. So there was actually, there's actually some data around this increase of um, immune response, and that's exciting to see. The psoriasis, um, they did a big psoriasis study, which is kind of fascinating, I think. They took um, a bunch of people with psoriasis, you know, the skin condition. And the treatment that people generally use for psoriasis is you go and you, you go into like this kind of tanning booth and you get, you get treated with these light rays. And so these people went into these tanning booths and some of them just did the, got the light ray treatment and the other people got, um, got a mindfulness meditation tape played for them. So they meditated while they were in there and the other people didn't. And the, it turned out that those people recovered faster from the psoriasis. So there's a lot of thought about the improved immune functioning, improved uh, just heal, the healing responses stimulated. However, a big study came out of Canada um, just this last year, and they said it's all inconclusive. So it's sort of like a bottom line. They said, I know there's been lots and lots of studies. We've reviewed hundreds of studies in the literature, and we can't say for sure that it was mindfulness that helped people's health improve. Because if people were given a relaxation response or like, like a relaxation tape, a progressive relaxation, they also improved. So again, I'm telling you this because I want you to see the complexity of this. It's not just, um, it's not just mindfulness is great. It cures everything. If you have high blood pressure, do meditation, do yoga, you'll be fine. It's much more complex. Have you forgotten your body? <laughs> So again, just checking into your body. 
Letting yourself sink into the sensations, the weight, the touch. Feeling yourself present as your mind goes off and thinks about these things. So another area of mindfulness research has been in the area of attention. And I was, as I was preparing this talk, I was finding some quotes from scientists who said things I thought were pretty valuable. And this is from Sir Isaac Newton. He said, if I've ever made any valuable discoveries, it's been owed more to patient attention than any other talent. And I think that's very interesting. It's, it's a patient attention has led to these discoveries of some really important things, clearly. So mindfulness improves attention. We know from, we know lately, there's been a lot of research, actually, things were just in New York Times Magazine uh, or New York Times about how multitasking is really bad for you. You've seen this, but it absolutely, it's, if you want to learn something, do not multitask. I mean, that's what the research, I think I have one of the studies here. Hang on. Multitasking affects the brain's learning system, and as a result, we don't learn as well when we're distracted. Multitasking adversely affects how you learn. Even if you learn while multitasking, that learning is less flexible and more specialized, so you cannot retrieve the information as easily. Our study shows that to the degree you can learn while multitasking, you'll use different brain systems. So um, don't multitask. <laughs> and you're all thinking, good luck, right? Um, I'm really excited about this new California law making us stop talking on our cell phones. I've been, I've been, just, I've been thrilled about it, and not because um, I'm not the best driver in the world and it's going to improve, I'm sure, but because my mindfulness has gotten so much worse since I brought my cell phone into the car. I used to use my, my, um, my time in the car as a place to practice. It was this incredible site of awareness. I would feel my body and the seat. I would feel my hands on the steering wheel. I would notice the arising of strong emotion and begin to regulate it and calm down. I mean, it was this great place. I'd get mad, you cut me off, that jerk. Okay, anger, feeling my anger, feeling my body. And then the cell phone arose, right? And then I could just start talking on the phone and avoid feeling what was happening. So anyway, I'm thrilled about this, uh, <laughs> this new law. I feel like uh, California is legislating mindfulness. <laughs> so, um, so we did a study at UCLA a few years ago about ADHD, people who had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And we had... 20, 25 adults and eight teenagers, and I taught, I taught the program. We developed our own program based on this NBSR program, and um, it was really successful. It was very exciting to watch because the people who came in, they just said, there's no way I can meditate. I'll never be able to meditate, and we said, well, let's give it a try because we actually didn't know people with identified ADHD could, could meditate. And um, as it turned out, they could. A lot of the meditation became a more daily life practice. Became, they, they, they all developed their regular daily practice, but also learning to bring mindfulness into the middle of life situations. To be mindful when driving, to be mindful when brushing their teeth, to be mindful for the kids. There was a lot of 
How do you be mindful in the midst of the classroom? And what, we, what they learned was we tried to frame ADHD as not, um, as it's not a problem. It's, there's so many people with incredibly creative brains have this, have this kind of attention wandering deficit disorder. And we, we said it to them, actually, this is a gift. You're probably really creative. What you need to learn is how to regulate your attention. And, you know, think about it. Kids have been told, especially kids that are hyperactive or, you know, people are, kids are always told, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. But no one ever teaches them how to pay attention. And so it was so natural to say, okay, here's mindfulness. Here's how you pay attention. Your mind wanders, you bring it back. It wanders and bring it back. And, um, and they could. So it was almost like the skill never got trained in people. I mean, in most people, not just people with ADHD, it never got trained in most of us, which is one of the reasons it's so hard when we're sitting here. We've been taught to multitask. We've been taught to be distracted. We haven't been taught to be focused. And one of the things I would always say to the, um, the, to the students in the program was, because you have ADHD, you're really lucky. The more you bring your mind back, the stronger the mindfulness muscle gets. And because you have ADHD, your mind is wandering all over the place, so you get to bring it back 100,000 million times. So you're going to have really good mindfulness at the end. And so the, the end result was a, um, increased attention, especially in what's called conflict attention, when there's lots of things competing for your attention, and you have an ability to stay focused on one thing, which was really exciting. In fact, so exciting that the doctors um, who looked at the, at the results of the research said, so what medication did you put them on? And we said, no, no, tea, meditation, not medication. <laughs> Um, it also uh, reported changes in people's self-esteem level, more ability to be um, kinder, less depression, less anxiety, which often accompanies people with attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity disorder. So concentration, as you know, can be cultivated. You're doing it here. You're changing the circuitry of your brain, which I'll talk about more in a moment. Um, but every time your mind wanders and every time you bring it back, you're creating new neural pathways. You're retraining your brain to be aware, to be concentrated. And it's really exciting to think that we have this capacity to change our brain, that we're not stuck with what we got. I mean, we may be a person, you know, people sometimes think that, oh, I was born kind of, you know, Sad. Am I going to be sad for the rest of my life? The science shows that people's brains continue to change well into adulthood and that with specific kinds of training, you, they can change in ways that you want them to change. And this is what the Buddha said. You know, he said this thousands of years ago. He said, what you sow, you'll reap. It's karma. What you plant is what will come up. If you put in a fig seed, you're not going to get a peach tree. You're going to get a fig tree. If you practice being kind, you will develop kindness. If you practice being mean, you'll develop meanness. If you practice being concentrated, concentration will come. The mind will learn to unify and gather, collect itself. 
So it, this, is, this has really interesting um, implications for children, for schools. We've been doing some research at UCLA bringing mindfulness to kids with a program that teaches a lot of what you're doing but with little kids in different ways. So for instance, learning to be with the breath means they lie down on their backs and they put a teddy bear in their belly and they watch the teddy bear go up and down, feeling that, feeling that breath. Or one of the ways that we work with the breath is you hold a pinwheel in front of them and they see their breath. They feel, they notice the changing, the changes in the pinwheel. They feel there's just hundreds of exercises for working with kids. But the long-term implication, we did, oh sorry, we did this study with pre-K students and it showed more ability to kind of control themselves, more sociability, more self-awareness. And this is again, early studies, very early studies, but this is four-year-olds. Four-year-olds were taught mindfulness meditation and there were changes in their behavior. So one day it might be that um, it becomes the fourth R, reading, writing, arithmetic, and reflection. (laughs) That it becomes part of the school curriculum that um, instead of just going for physical education class, we also get mental education class. Wouldn't that be amazing if every kid was taught mindfulness? I I just gave um, this little curriculum I have for mindfulness for kids to a teacher, and he tried it, and... um, with his kids, and then he just gave me all the, all the children filled out the forms about how it worked. So it was like about an eight or 10 week program. And some of them were like, I hated it. <laughs> and some of them were, I like mindfulness, mindfulness is good. And then there was a lot of them were like, when my mind wanders, I can bring it back. You know, I know that I can breathe when I'm sad or scared. And it was just so neat to see. And this was a guy who didn't even have a lot of experience. Like he was able to take this, he hadn't been meditating for 20 years. I mean, he was able to bring it, to, to have enough of a practice himself to be able to share it with the students and have the kids shift. So it's, very, it's, it's all very promising, very early, very early. Okay, checking into our bodies, coming back, coming back to ourselves. Eyes open or closed, noticing if there is some excitement and interest. Maybe some of you are really into kids and teaching kids, and oh, this is cool, this is interesting research. <sighs> Feeling that movement forward, the excitement. Maybe there's sleepiness or boredom or dullness, or anything is possible, anything is present, and all we need to do is be with it, just here and now. So the next area I'll talk about is in the area of mental health, because mindfulness clearly has been brought in to benefit people, and they've done studies on anxiety and depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder, and they've worked with it with borderline personalities and substance abuse and eating disorders, and there's just a whole range of ways that mindfulness has been brought into the mental health field. And it's kind of the new thing in psychology, or maybe not the new thing, it's the latest thing in, in the psychology world. Psychotherapists are really, really interested in mindfulness, and... Um, 
it's been woven into clinical treatments like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. There's, been, there's a whole range of therapies that use mindfulness. So generally, mindfulness helps with this awareness of emotion, which can be tremendously beneficial for anyone that's struggling with any emotional issues, whether it's, it's a, you know, a, something that's been diagnosed or just general anxiety, general sadness, general fear. We've, um, we talk a lot about a process of working with emotions here in the, in the Dharma world that has really gone out into these, um, into these different teachings. But the process is, and you're familiar with it probably, I'm sure it was talked about on the last retreat, reign, recognize, accept, investigate, and not identify with. Did you talk about it last time? Okay, yeah. Okay, so you know this one. Well, let me tell you some of the research about it. There was this great study that was done by a friend and colleague of mine um, about working with the recognition of emotions. And so what they did was they put a, they, they had flashed across a screen some faces and the faces were either scared faces, angry faces, uh, sad faces. And so they were flashed on the screen and underneath was a label. And the label said, it gave them some choices like sad, worried, fearful, happy. And then it also gave them some names like Mary, George, Fred. Okay. So the group looked at it and and they were hooked up to the fMRI so they could see what part of the brain was lighting up in relation to the faces. So when, the, um, so when they saw the faces, and they, what would happen is the amygdala, which is the kind of the primitive part of our brain, it's the oldest part of our brain, it's the part that responds with fear and um, responds with fear, with anger, it has that kind of immediate, what you might call animal response, right? This is the amygdala. When you see something scary, even if it's just for a second, your amygdala gets activated. So when the people picked the name of the phrase, of the phrase like um, angry, when it was an angry face, the prefrontal cortex, the front of the brain, which um, actually lit up. And that's the part of the brain that's responsible for calming the amygdala down. When, it, when if they picked Mary or Fred or George or something, nothing happened in the prefrontal cortex. What this means is that when you're having a strong emotion, if you can label it, it actually calms the whole nervous system down. So this is what they're, they're showing through this research. And so we know it's good, right? You know that if you're sitting there and you're feeling fear and you say, oh, fear, and you're present with it, there's something that happens. There's an actual response. And this is the early study about what, what it's, um, how it's impacting us. So then my friend who ran the study, he said, well, we want to take it to the next step. What do you think I should do? And I said, I go to the investigation. Have the people feel it in their bodies and see what happens. Because you know that there's the first step of just recognizing it, but then the investigation is where you really bring the mindfulness in, where you're really sensing it and taking it out of the whole story level of, you know, oh, that person, why did they do that to me? It's a terrible thing, blah, 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 right into just the physicality of the experience. 
And that helps in the N, the non-identification process. Now, you can actually teach people to be mindful of their thoughts and emotions. And there was a very interesting study done about 10 years ago, and it's called a study on metacognition. And metacognition means, um, it means knowing what you're knowing. So in that metacognition, it's actually another name for mindfulness. So we know what we know. While we're experiencing something, we know that we're knowing it. So this study was done with people who had depression relapses. So they had at least two relapses of depression. And they were taught to be mindful of their emotions. So when a thought, well, actually, particularly mindful of the thought. So when a depressed thought would come, they would say, they would notice, oh, depressed thought. And they would do this, they would, they would disidentify from the thought in the sense that they would just see it as a thought. Instead of it being my thought, it was just a thought. Exactly what we're doing here is just a thought coming and going, passing by. So, um, so they, they compared this to a control group. And the control group, every time they had a negative thought come up, come up replaced it with a positive thought. So, oh, I'm such a bad person. I'm a good person. They replaced it. So guess which one was more successful? Come on. <laughs> the, the first one. Mindfulness. How did you guess? Because <laughs> I'm sitting up here in a mindfulness retreat telling you this. Um, mindfulness was more successful than replacing it with a positive thought. And part of the assumption around this is that, you know, it's, especially if you're depressed, if you try to, it can feel inauthentic to say, oh, no, I'm really happy when you're not, right? But what it, what it also showed was that this, this ability that we can have, that we're all learning here to be in the midst of something and be in the midst of it and have a little bit of space so that it moves from being my thought or my difficult emotion, or my fear, or my anger, into the thought, the difficult emotion, the fear, the anger. And it's really beautiful. You've all had taste of this on the meditation, and this retreat, where suddenly you're just really in something, and then in a moment it shifts. And you come into the body, and you feel the sensations in the body. You label it. You accept it. I didn't talk so much about the A, but you accept it. And it's just another sensation coming by, another thought, another emotion. I love to think of emotions as energy in motion. Not me, not mine, not personal, but just this energy moving through us. And this can be trained. People can be trained to do this. You don't have to be meditating in a cave for 20 years. You can learn to have a little space with your emotions. Okay, body, yeah, so just coming back and noticing. Of course you realize this helps me, right, as well. I come back into myself if I get out. And we can all just check in and see what's happening, what's present. Are there emotions, are there thoughts? You can see them come and go. So 
There's been some interesting research in this field of self-compassion, it's called. In fact, um, it's, it's really one of the cutting edges of this whole area. It's not exactly, it, well, it includes mindfulness. Self-compassion is, um, it's different than self-esteem. For a long time, a lot, of the, a lot of the programs that were out there were about building people's self-esteem. And it turned out that they were, uh, it, it was fostering what some people thought was a kind of narcissism, like build them up. They're going to feel good about yourself, feel good about yourself. And it wasn't really like a deep acceptance of oneself. So a new ter term was coined, and this is called self-compassion. I want to read you the definition. In contrast to self-esteem, self-compassion is not based on self-evaluations. People feel compassion for themselves because all human beings deserve compassion and understanding, not because they possess some particular set of traits, I'm pretty, smart, talented, and so on. This means that with self-compassion, you don't have to feel better than others to feel good about yourself. Self-compassion also allows for greater clarity because personal failings can be acknowledged with kindness and do not need to be hidden. Moreover, self-compassion isn't dependent on external circumstances. It's always available, especially when you fall flat on your face. Research indicates that in comparison to self-esteem, self-compassion is associated with greater emotional resilience, more accurate self-concepts, more caring relationship behavior, as well as less narcissism and reactive anger. So, there was this interest, and actually the researcher is a Dharma practitioner, and she's come to Spirit Rock quite a bit, the one who coined this term. And she, decided, she thought of self-compassion, hang on one sec. She conceived of self-compassion as this combination of mindfulness, loving-kindness, and what she called shared humanity. So the loving-kindness so is what you would think. It's having an ability to have metta for yourself and compassion for yourself. And so people who have self-compassion have that ability. The, the, self, um, the mindfulness is about having this ability, essentially, to be present in the midst of difficult thoughts about yourself. So that when we have these thoughts, and we all have them, right? The thought that says, oh, I'm terrible at meditation. I'm never going to be able to teach this. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, all of these self-judgmental thoughts. We can be mindfully aware in the midst of them. And, um, and then the third piece is this shared humanity. And I love this part because it's not so much talked about in the Dharma circles, but what it is is when you have this acknowledgement, this understanding that we all go through this, we all go through this, and um, you start to not take it so personally. It actually adds to this quality of disidentification. So I'll give you an example of this. If um, we get to see the shared humanity, if I were to ask this question, the question is, who here has ever looked in the mirror and not liked what they saw? Raise your hand. <laughs> if you look around, <laughs> you missed it, but pretty much everyone. Who here has ever worked really hard on something important to them and had it fail? 
and you look around and you see everybody. Who here has ever... Um, well, you get the point. <laughs> I can think of about ten of them, but I think we, we'll just stop here. You get my point, right? We've all, we're all... Who here thinks I'm a really bad meditator this week? <laughs> I'm having a hard time. Yeah, okay, look around. A lot of you think that. You're not alone. When we can remember this in the midst of, um, of feeling bad about ourselves, it's as though something opens up and that quality of disidentification occurs. So we become mindful of the self-judgment. We bring in the metta and we recognize our shared humanity. And when they did the early research on this, just fairly recently actually, what they did was they didn't even teach mindfulness. They just, they just um, worked with a bunch of college students and, told, and had them identify when they were mindful of their judgments and saw what levels of compassion they had towards themselves and who was happier in life in general. And of course, the higher your self-compassion, the more ability you had, the more resilience, the more ability to kind of take things with a grain of salt. It wasn't that you stopped having these thoughts about yourself. It was just you had a little space. You would notice that you were thinking, oh, I'm terrible at meditation. And then you'd say, oh, well, that's an interesting thought, self-judgment. And in it was this great sense, it can be this great sense of ease and peace. And so what they're interested in now is how do we train people in self-compassion? And I say the answer is go on a meditation retreat. That's easy. That's an easy answer. But not everybody's going to want to do that. Um, What is... What's really interesting then is this takes us into the area of the brain research. And And some of the research was done with these Tibetan monks who had been meditating for 20 years. And let me just get that. And so they hooked up Tibetan monks to these fMRIs. And um, they saw that these people had this incredible ability to be compassionate. So they would have them do a compassion practice that they'd been practicing for 20, 30 years in their caves and so forth. And then they would play some kind of sound that elicited a strong emotion, like it would, the sound of a child crying or the sound of someone shouting for help. And they would notice which parts of the brain lit up. And there would be very strong activity in the minds of these monks who had been cultivating compassion, that the brain would just, they, there was just increased uh, compassion compared to the people who didn't have this kind of training. So what this is, what this is showing us is that the more that you practice the more capacity you have in your mind. And that we can train ourselves in the self-compassion. Like I was saying earlier, what we practice, we will cultivate. So if you're in a place in the practice where you're feeling mad at yourself, sad, you can cultivate more compassion and it will change the circuitry of your brain. Not that it will erase old circuits, but what it will do is create new neural pathways 
and that we can learn to be more self-loving and self-accepting. Not that we have to go into a cave for 20 or 30 years, but things can change. And what they saw when they just did general tests on mindfulness with people who, these were not people who were 20-year meditators. You know, when we talk about the 20-year meditators, we're kind of talking about the athletes of meditation. You know, they're really the Olympic athletes of meditation. With these other studies, these were people who, um, who had 10 years of practice, ten, somewhere, I think it said between seven to 10 years of practice, who on an average practice four to six hours a week. So people like you guys. In fact, many of them were part-time yoga or meditation instructors. So they, they hooked them up with the fMRIs. And what they found was that, um, actually, I'm sorry, this was not an fMRI study, but they, they, they assessed the cortical thickness in 20 participants and the brain regions associated with attention, sensory processing, and interoception, which means the ability to know what's going on internally, in meditation participants were, um, were thicker. Essentially, they found that parts of the brain responsible for executive functioning, for flexible thinking and empathy, were thicker than people who didn't meditate. So this is really good news, especially when they compared it to people who were older. They said that, um, that it was most pronounced in older particip participants, suggesting that meditation might offset age-related cortical thinning. So if you're worried that you're, uh, I don't know, getting forgetful, losing things, remembering, um, meditate. It seems to increase the gray matter in your brain. And this is really exciting. This is, again, more about this neuroplasticity. You know, neuroplasticity, when they look at that, they look at, for instance, a taxi driver's brain. And you see that a taxi driver, the part of the brain responsible for reading maps and understanding kind of complex geography is thicker than people who don't drive taxis or read maps. So the part of the brain that can be responsible for, as I said, empathy, flexible thinking, things like that, that you think would be associated with mindfulness, yes, this increases, this, this part of the brain increases. But it's not only in um, advanced meditators or even medium level meditators, they've done the studies with beginning meditators and they've noticed changes in eight weeks of practice. And they found that um, there was 50% more electrical activity in the left frontal region, so this prefrontal cortex I was talking about. Um, and this, and it, they, they would study these over several months, and they found these changes to hold up over at least four to five months. So basically, practice, 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 practice. I mean, this is an aside, but there's some research around how long it takes to be proficient at something. So if you want to be proficient at the harmonica, how many, um, how many weeks or how many hours do you think you need to practice to get proficient at the harmonica? 100. 100? Actually, only 50. 50 hours. So you could do 1,000, he said. <laughs> so if you want to devote 50 hours to the harmonica, you can be proficient. How about the piano? He says 50, no. 450 hours it takes to have a kind of basic proficiency. How about the violin? Yeah, 1,200 hours it takes 
How about competitive swimming on a 12th grade level? <laughs> 6,000 to 8,000 hours. You got that one pretty right. <laughs> okay, how about mindfulness meditation? 40. 40. <laughs> we have no idea is the answer to that question. Nobody knows. But we do know the more you practice, the more results you will see. So keep practicing. This part of the brain, there's two parts of the brain that get affected. One is this prefrontal cortex, and also the other part is, the, is called the insula, which is the part that's responsible for gathering information from, other, from your body and processing it in your brain. And what um, our Dan Siegel suggests, and I'll just kind of complete all this with um, just this last little piece, but actually, feel your body <laughs> first. And just take a breath, and again, notice and be present. Okay. So the last thing I'll say about this is that um, Dan Siegel's been studying, was studying what's called secure attachment. And what that is, is when a child and a parent are properly, when a child is properly parented, there's a certain development in the brain that happens that is desirable. So the child feels safety, they develop appropriately, and this is called attunement. Secure, well, it's a, their child and the parent are attuned, and this is called secure attachment. When, if you didn't get secure attachment as a child, you can still have that happen. For instance, in a therapy relationship with a therapist and a, and a child and a patient, you can, a client, you can have the kind of attachment happen that you didn't get as a child, but you can have it happen in relation to the therapist. And that secure attachment occurs and the brain development can um, continue. He speculates that the same things happen when you meditate, that you're cultivating kind of a secure relationship with yourself. And the parts of the brain, then I'm going to just list these because you'll recognize them from, from meditating. This is what changes when a child is properly attuned, attached to the parent. So the ability to regulate your body, the ability to balance your emotions, to attune to others, so be able to properly kind of relate to others, modulating fear, responding flexibly, so not being so reactive, but having more flexibility in the response, exhibiting insight and empathy. And then two more, then these are all prefrontal cortex. These are all, these were all developed. And these, um, these were also, um, these haven't been studied so much, but also being in touch with your intuition and morality. That's actually when a child is properly attuned to a parent, the morality, this quali these qualities of morality develop. So every single one of those sounds a lot like meditation to me, right? Of what comes with meditation. And that's because they assume it's the same parts of the brain that are being nurtured and supported. Mm -hmm. 
So ultimately, in a sense, what we're doing here is we're learning to we're learning to be our own best friend. That's what meditation is, I think, sometimes. Just being here fully, showing up for yourself, showing up for yourself again and again and again, even when it's rotten and hard and boring and tiresome. But we show up and our brain changes and our body changes and our mental health changes and, um, and life changes. So I'll just end with a scientist's quote kind of a famous quote from Albert Einstein. And here's what he said. He said, A human being is part of a whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So why don't we just sit and check into our bodies one last time. So noticing how it feels to be present, alive in this body, with this active mind or relaxed mind. How it feels to break ourselves from this optical delusion so that we can see the connections. Because ultimately, all this science stuff, all this research, if it's in the service of making us more free and connected and happier, then it's doing it the right thing. So may we all be happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.